In pagan Germany, sometime in the 8th century, legend has it that a Christian monk, who would later become known as Saint Boniface, gathered a tribe of non-believers around him and their most sacred tree. Thought to incite a vengeful bolt of lightning from Thor himself if cut down, Boniface, in front of all who could see, felled the tree with a single chop of the axe, aided by a gust of wind seemingly from another divinity and no lightning. In that moment, the onlookers were converted to Christianity. Tonight we are joined by the author of The Boniface Option, Pastor Andrew, to explore why the analogy of a bold and visceral attack against false idols may be fitting for addressing the troubles of our trash world times. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostage. It's been ideal. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, I am Hank Oslo. Uh, some contracts, the money kind of ran out of, uh, and uh, so I'm back in the country. Uh, Poland is a lovely place. I do not recommend living there. Uh, we're joined by uh, Adam Smith, uh, Hans Lander, and uh, we're joined here by a very special guest, uh, Andrew, who's uh, going to talk about uh, the uh, the Boniface option. Uh, Andrew, would you uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, yes, my my name is Andrew. Uh, I am the author of uh, the Boniface Option and and um, other books, other works. Uh, my, that's also my my Twitter handle. I am a pastor in rural southern Minnesota, and um, yeah, I've uh, I've I've been on, online for for quite a while, and uh, I've written you know many things both both online. On I write for uh, Gab News, um, you know, regularly, uh, and so and this book also is is published by uh, Gab Press. So I mean, I think we can just kind of jump into it. Like, okay. you know, your your experience as a pastor, like the the book is is great. Uh, I did a review for the Sun. I think it's very interesting. And you know, I don't want to mischaracterize your work. Obviously, I want to let you speak for yourself. But you know, as I interpreted it, it seemed very kind of formed by your experience as a Christian pastor, looking around at. Uh, sort of the ways that other churches interact with society and essentially it being a uh, uh, kind of inter-pastoral uh, letter almost that, no, you need to actually point out the extent to which things are deeply rotten in society. Like, is that sort of the, the direction that you were trying to go with that and what sort of informed that uh 
that realization or that viewpoint. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a very accurate characterization of my book. It, it's <clears throat> it's something where I, I just think that a lot of the you know conservative evangelical Christian world that that I come from, um, they're able to diagnose some of the problems with our society. They'll, they'll say, okay, well, you know, abortion is bad and transgenderism is bad and and homosexuality things like that. You know, they'll, they'll notice those things and say, yep, that's that's bad. But they they won't go any further than that. There won't be any analysis um, of the structure of our society to to understand, OK, well, wh- where did these things come from? Why? It, why is it the way that it is? Did it just spring up? <laughs> all these issues just spring up out of the ground or is there um, a long current of of thought and social development or 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 um or actually you know, social devolution um, that that has created the conditions that we we now have, um, and and so I, I look around, you know, I see even even very you know bright, uh, knowledgeable conservative uh, evangelical pastors, and, and it even goes beyond evangelicalism. I mean, you you can you can look to like conservative Lutheranism and even traditional Catholicism, where many of their like leading thinkers and and commentators. Um, are are still just very obtuse, right? And very naive. They're like, they just can't see why things are the way they are. Even, even just looking at, you know, for instance, like the the incel question, right? The the question of like, why are all these young men not getting married? And the typical, you know, evangelical pastor is, you know, he's fifty or sixty years old, right? He's from the boomer generation, and he looks at it and he thinks. Well, why, why, why are they playing all these video games? They should just stop playing video games and get married to a nice young gal, right? And they, they have that's that's the depth of their analysis. They can't think any any deeper about it than these guys are just lazy, right? Or these guys are just losers. Unlike me, you know, when I was that age, I wasn't that way, right? Not seeing that the the structure of the world's so radically different than forty years ago when they when they were young men, and. And I, you know, I looked at the situation, like nobody is talking about this stuff, right? Nobody sees these things. No, nobody, at least in my world, sees that, that things are this way and that telling young men, hey, just stop playing video games is not a good answer, you know, to, to these guys, right? And so that is, um, that's largely, I think, you know, what, what drove me to, to write about this, this stuff, because I'm, I'm see, I've been seeing it all over the place, right? I see it not only in, in real life and in, 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 you know, life around me, but you see it online, you see, you know, all, all of the things that, that, you know, we all kind of see in kind of the right wing online world. Um, they're totally oblivious to it. And so when I'm writing it, yeah, I, I want, especially to persuade uh, pastors to begin to think a lot more deeply about the world that they are ministering in, that it isn't anywhere nearly as simple as they think, because they're just, they're like not equipped to deal with it. They're they're used to um, the kind of pastoral problems that would exist, or even just the cultural problems that would exist in like the 1980s or 1990s, and that world no longer exists at all. What what do you think it would happen to the guys from Stone Choir? We've had them on a couple of times, and I, I think you're familiar with them at least mm-hmm. online. And mm-hmm. their their story was basically the LCMS 
did not approve of what they were talking about uh, along these lines, I would argue, uh, on the internet and perhaps a little bit in church as well. But I think the scale at which they were doing it on the internet probably scared them. That's my opinion. But I'd love to hear what you think about Mm -hmm. what happened. Yeah, I think that there are there, there's a lot of examples like that where there are you know, Christians that are, are kind of uh, a reactionary element. I don't I don't know specifically the the details of of what happened um, with them in the LCMS. I know that you know there was you know church discipline and for one of the guys, the guys there, um, and so I think uh, it there's it's not just like the LCMS. But really, all throughout the various uh, denominations and 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 uh, parts of Christendom, where there is, especially younger guys, you know, um, millennials and, and Zoomer age guys, who are online, they're seeing the way the world is, and the denominational structure does is resistant to any conversation that isn't within you know the bounds of the Overton window. And, and, and so what happens is you begin to build an audience. Like for me, it's, it's kind of the same way where I, you know, just was a guy with a Twitter account. I mean, I was a pastor, but I've always pastored really small churches. It's not like, um, anyone has ever heard of me because I'm a pastor of a big giant, you know, mega church or something. Um, and, and so you, you kind of are out on, on the outside looking in, um, if you're, aware of the way of the world. And so they're very threatened by this, right? It is, you know, not just, you know, not just the LCMS or not just, you know, conservative reformed denominations that, that I've been involved in, um, not just, you know, like a big denomination, like the Southern Baptist uh, convention, right? There's all sorts of different groups that are trying to, to push, um, a more traditional, you know, um, both theologically and and culturally view of the world and they they're meeting very very stiff resistance and so it's it's really all over the place it's not just you know it's not just like in the lcms like i know there's the case of like ryan turnipseed i don't know if you guys are familiar with with what happened to him he's a young guy uh college student in uh, oklahoma i believe mm-hmm. and he was he was um also disciplined by uh the lutheran church mm-hmm. and 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 it wasn't it didn't appear to be anything that was, you know, very clearly, you know, inflammatory or sinful or anything like that. It was, it was basically, they didn't like what he was saying online or the people that he was talking to. Right. And so it's like, well, what are you supposed to do? You know, like, um, I, I, I look at it like I, I want to talk to anybody, you know, anyone who wants to talk to a pastor, right. About the Bible and about theology. Um, I don't, I don't care who they are. I'll, I'll be happy to talk to them. Right. And it's, it's funny because like the LCMS, for instance, and, and, you know, the denominations I come from, many of them, if you were talking to like a drag queen or a homosexual or something, and, and you're sharing the gospel with them, having conversations with them, right. They would never think twice about that. They'd be like, That's totally fine. But if you're talking to someone who's like on the online, right. Mm-hmm. Oh man, we, you're very dangerous. We, that's not good. You shouldn't be talking to those people, right? It's the, the double standard that they have, um, is they will allow you to talk to anything to the left, but, but if you talk to someone to the right of like Mitt Romney, oh, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. Um, and, and I, I think a lot of it is just the church is completely, um, for the, for the most part, completely beholden to the regime. Right. Um, it is and, and not necessarily like a financial way or a legal way, but but culturally, 
right? They're they're terrified of being viewed as you know bigoted fundamentalists or or, or whatever, and or being viewed even even today as you know Christian nationalists that are trying to take over the country. Like they're they're terrified of being labeled that way rather than just telling the truth. Is this a generational thing mostly, or do you think it's just most people are like this in the church? In other words, are older people oh. mostly speaking pro-regime things, or would you say everybody except for a few scattering of online people are? Um, I think it is – yeah, I, I think it's it's largely a generational thing. I mean I think that's the, the biggest component to it is is you know what generation you're in. Um, there are there are some older guys from like the boomer generation that that are pretty good, um, but there's way more of them that are you know Gen X and especially millennial and and Zoomer, and and so I think that's a, a major component to it. It's not the only one because there are I mean the majority of like millennials and Zoomers in the church think the you know in, in the regime centric way too right. But there's the number of of people that are kind of aware of the state of the world um, among the younger cohort are, you know, are, are is much bigger. Um, so that I think that's the biggest component, but it's not the only one. Who are the grill Americans from your from your <laughs> from your blog, your Substack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh, grill Amer- I, I I classify them just as as you know normies, like regular people that um, they go to their job, they they are excited to, you know, here in Minnesota, you know, watch the Vikings on Sunday and uh, go drink some beers with their buddies. And, and they don't, they don't think too deeply or hard about anything, right? They're just regular people that, you know, if they watch the news or care about politics, it'll be at a very, you know, surface level, right? They'll just, they'll listen to the news for 20 minutes and, and that's, you know, all they, they really know. Um, and so they are, and they are the, the kind of people that are, are you know very you know largely very easily manipulated by by propaganda. So like when the Ukraine thing happens, um, they uh, they immediately see the signals and they're like, oh, uh, Vladimir Putin is literally Hitler. He's going to take over the world, and, and so he's evil. We need to support this or or like the the Israel and and, and Hamas thing. Like immediately, oh, well, you know, uh, Israel is is the good guys, right? They just they're they're very vulnerable to to propaganda. But at, at the same time, I, I classify them like as as your your normal like middle American people. So they are you know predisposed to like someone like Trump, right? To be you know someone that's very pro America, like the, that sends those kind of signals to them, right? And so it isn't it isn't so much like NPCs, right? I mean we're using a lot of internet lingo here, but uh, but like the NPC is just like the easily programmed. It's like a redditor, right? Just a, a person that totally it it, it buys into. Uh, the culture of trash world, right? They they they're just lock, stock, and barrel owned by it. Whereas I think the Grill American is just a regular regular ordinary Joe, right? That is, um, that uh, yeah, he he just I mean it's the meme, right? He just wants to grill, right? He doesn't care about too much, right? And and so th- those are the kind of people that I I think you know are are. Are are the ones that are predisposed to be largely sympathetic to us if there is enough of a, a movement to, um, that can bring them in, right? Um, and and so I think the, the the obvious example of that is 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 twenty sixteen and Trump, right? That all of these people are are sort of radicalized, right? They're these these 
you know, to use a a previous term from a few decades ago, like middle American radicals, right? It's very easy to transform them from your, your grill American normie that doesn't care much about anything to, oh, we're, we're actually really getting screwed, right? Our, our entire society is being destroyed. We're being demographically replaced, right? Everything is bad. And it's not that hard to, to get them to see a little bit, but it, it takes a, uh, on the one hand, I say it's not very hard, but it takes like this this uh, you know figure like Trump to be able to to do that, right? Um, and so I, I do make the distinction between the yeah the krill American and like the the bug man, right? Well, your your article was uh, calling for the radicalization of the grill Americans, yep. and uh, we could even debate about that strategy. But I, I wanted to let you maybe talk yeah. about your book also, and then maybe talk about why that's seems to be what you are advocating for. And I also wanted to, for the context of those who aren't familiar with your work, maybe contrast it a little bit with some of the other options out there because the title of your yeah. your, your new book is called uh, The Bona Face Option as opposed to Rod Dreer's book, The Benedict Option. And then there's even a guy online called The Eggs Benedict Option. Uh, he's like this <laughs> like bodybuilder type. He's kind yeah. of funny. I, I'd call him the Nietzschean option maybe for people who yeah. don't know what the heck Eggs Benedict means. It's sort of a play yeah. on you guys though. So are you yeah. familiar with all that? And can maybe, could you maybe contrast those and what, what the different approaches are? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I had I had raw egg nationalist on uh, on my podcast a couple of weeks ago with with uh, a buddy of mine. We we do a podcast, and so we had, nice. we had uh, we had uh, Ren on and and just to discuss these. So mostly, we just talked about health and nutrition and things like that. Um, but uh, no, yeah, I'm very I'm I'm very familiar with with uh, Ren and and of course uh, Rodrier. I mean, even even like my book, uh, you know, Boniface Option is. You know, obviously, it's a play on Andrea's book. That was a you know huge hit. A lot of people read it. And this is, I mean, when he wrote it in 2017, it was, you know, just you know a year and a half or so after Obergefell, and a lot of people were really reeling, especially in the conservative evangelical world, just just beside themselves, not knowing what to do. Like this is a major cultural shift that happened, and you, you I'm sure you all remember what it was like when it. When it happens and just the rapid shift from, you know, a fairly normal society in 2015 to now everyone has to wave the rainbow flag every, every all over the place. And that that happened really quick. Right. This huge preference cascade. Right. And and so he writes this and this was like the first salvo of someone actually saying something about the culture and how we should you know go forward, what we should do in the future. And um. And, and it actually, I don't think it was a terrible book, to be honest. Like it was, you know, the idea of well, we should you know withdraw to uh, intentional, um, conscious community, right? Having as much in real life community with other people as a defensive strategy, right? That I'm, it's like, yeah, that's great, that's wonderful. But then, I mean, at the same time, you look at this guy Dreer himself, and what has he done? Like he, um, he divorced his wife and moved to Hungary. Right. That was his that was his major. Um, that's that's the major thing he's done in the last you know three years. And so, um, well, um, just just to go to Rod Dreher for a moment, his article yeah. was um, I mean, to say it was uh, even handed, it probably is a little bit too generous. He was somewhat critical <laughs> of what you yeah. were talking about. And 
you know, without like re-quoting everything, it'll take too long. But the, the broad strokes of it was that he thought that you were very against things, which he is also against, but that's all you had to offer. And he seemed to imply that you were kind of very angry. And this is what I was saying before the show. I, th I think that's a complete mischaracterization, at least based on what I've heard from your interviews and speaking to you myself. You don't seem like a very angry person at all. So maybe he took it that way because he didn't really do more research or he just didn't want to cast you in a more positive light. But he, he also, I don't want to take away from what he's done and he, he's a mm -hmm. good writer and everything. And like you said, I mean, we're all kind of going at the same problems here. So I don't think it's, yeah. it's helpful to start, uh, you know, fighting each other over small issues, but regarding yeah. what to do, yeah. I think that's the most interesting thing. And I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, a lot of it, the, the main impulse of my book is like one of the biggest things that we have to do is get people, especially, um, you know, leaders, you know, pastors, people uh, that, that have influence to see just how bad things really are. Right. I mean, in terms of like actively doing things like step one, what should we do? Well, I mean, the majority of, of conservative pastors in America don't think things are as bad as they are. They think like, oh yeah, the drag queen stuff, that's pretty bad. But overall things are pretty healthy in our society. They're, 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 it's all right. And my, my entire thing in the book is like, no, no, things are way worse than you think. And we need to start doing things about this. And one is just like calling it what it is. Right. So that's, that's a, a huge step is, yeah, is, is beginning to beginning to see how things really are because so many people are so oblivious. And, and, you know, on top of that, it's like, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I, I do spend a lot of time in the book doing that, but I, I, I feel like I, I gave a lot of positive examples too. Like the first half of the book is, is how much you should hate things. And that, that's, it's funny that, yeah, you dwell on like, oh yeah, Andrew is this very angry, angry young man, right? He's, he looks like he's, he's he, like, he apparently watched one of my podcasts. He looks like he's about 30 years old. And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm 37. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but like, he's, he's this angry young man. He's just full of rage. And it's like, Rod, do you see what's going on today? Right. In my state, in Minnesota, they just passed the law this year where if you like if you're, one of your kids decides he wants to become a girl uh, and you oppose that and you don't you you actively oppose it, the CPS can take your kid away out of your custody. Like they just passed that this year. Like, do you do you not get how bad things are, man? Like you, you should be full of anger and, and rage and hatred. I mean, there's a, a part in the book where and, and some of it is I'm trying to counteract you know, the typical evangelical culture of we just love, you know, we're, we're just full of love. Love is, is so good. God is love. And, and Jesus is so sweet and nice. And it's like, no, like uh, if you love something, that means that means you also hate, right? You, you hate the thing that it's its opposite, right? If you love your children, you hate anybody that wants to harm them or abuse them, right? That's that's part of what love is. Right. The opposite of love is indifference. Yeah. It's like, and how do you have light without dark? You have to yeah. have an understanding of what, you know, the opposites are. Yeah. And that, like the Bible is like extremely clear that God hates things, right? He has lots of hate and we should be like God where he loves, he loves what, what is good, but he hates what's evil. And we should, we're commanded to do exactly the same thing. And so the, the, but the, the ethos of a lot of, of conservative evangelicalism and just conservative Christianity in general is, is just 
right, really just indifference about the state of the world, but it has this like facade of love, right? Well, we, we're really loving people if we just kind of don't care what's going on. Um, and, and it's like, that, no, that, that is like one of the things that we need to kill. Like, that's the thing we need to chop down is this, this idol of, of just love for love's sake, where it's actually hatred, right? If you love somebody that's doing horrible, awful things to themselves and to other people, and you're tolerating it, that's not love. That's actually hatred. But if you present it that way, right, people lose their minds. And so like, that's one of the things I, I'm trying to get across where, no, you should actually be much more confrontational than you are, right? The, the mode of the typical evangelical pastor is, is to be very passive aggressive and non-confrontational. And it's like, man, we got enemies at the gates. You, you need to be willing to fight. And if, if you do not, right, then, then you're already surrendering. Uh, and so I think that's some of what like Rod, um, like the vibe he didn't like. <laughs> it's like, I want to fight. Like, well, I don't know if you've well, seen a picture Rod of Rod. He's not a fighter. At least capable of passing a vibe check of yeah. possibly <laughs> any personality on the planet. He, he, he simultaneously looks like uh, a deranged sex pervert and also probably like an 80 year old virgin. Like, I don't know how it's possible, but he has somehow mastered that aesthetic. Uh, let me ask you, Andrew, since, yeah. uh, so I, I skimmed through this sort of like screed, um, from Dreher and, uh, prior to the episode here. And he spends a lot of time very monotonously trying to psychoanalyze you. Yeah. So perhaps we can psychoanalyze him a little bit. <laughs> what 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 do you think motivates you can unsee, man? <laughs> what, what do you what, what do you think motivates this this sort of um, fatalistic uh, wimpiness that is behind his whole philosophy in the Benedict Option? Because when it came out, um, I mean, he was a he was a source of comedy even then because it was so patently stupid. Um, and it's, you know, even more so now, but what do you think motivates that? Because he spent a lot of time trying to get at your motivation. So perhaps we can try and figure out what motivates him. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I think, you know, for, to begin with, he, like, you know why he got let go from, uh, the American conservative, right? You guys know this story? I, I don't know. Uh, if I, if I remember correctly, I heard some anecdote. Well, Dreher is the king of anecdotes. Uh, That's right. <laughs> just, you know, it's it's like Seinfeld-esque, uh, only instead of like a, a, a poppy bass track, it's like dead silence as people wonder why the fuck <laughs> about his like experience seeing his like third grade classmates dick at the mm -hmm. urinal. And why he has such a fascination that he found this unnecessary rhetorical point to make. And eventually the donors were like, bro, you got to like move to Hungary. That's fine. We've all, you know, had to go out in the woods and puzzle out some stuff. Maybe we don't want to be funding your uh, your uh, primitive root wiener. Uh, yeah, I, I was yeah. going to I was just about to say like dark root or whatever he called it. Yeah, uh, primitive root wiener. Yeah. So that's, that's the story that got him fired. I didn't realize that was, so what there was a single donor that like some billionaire. So, you know, wouldn't, wouldn't we all love to have a billionaire funding 
our work, right? Uh, one single donor that paid his salary and, and donated to the um, the American conservative who like the stipulation was the American conservative had to run Roger Rear's stuff unedited, right? Which is why like when, yeah, as Hank mentions that primitive root wiener post is in there. I'm thinking like, do they not have editors? What on earth? You know, actually I, I, I have one of, one of the editors there is a, a mutual of mine on Twitter. She's great. Uh, Helen Andrews. And I'm thinking like, how did this escape her? <laughs> like how did, how did, how did this make it to copy? Right. And, uh, and that's why, because that was the stipulation of the donor, but the donor was like, all right, I like this guy a lot, obviously. Uh, but he's getting too weird for me, like too much, too much, uh, homoerotic stuff. So I'm pulling, pulling the plug. So it's just one guy that he had to keep happy and it didn't work. Uh, but so like part of the psychoanalysis is that it's like, why, what kind of guy talks about those kind of things? Right. Um, in, on the pages of a fairly prestigious American journal. Um, and and I mean, his his personal life is, you know, I mean, it's it's a public record now, um, like moving to Hungary and, and leaving his family. That's that's an interesting data point, at least. Um, but I think even deeper than that, like there's a reason why he's as po- like he's he's a popular writer. There's a reason why people like what he has to say, because I think he represents a lot of a lot of the way people think. And and it's I mean, it's kind of like the you know, the whole San Francis thing of like beautiful losers, Right. We want to we want to lose, but with respectability. And that is, you know, primitive root wiener notwithstanding. Right. What he represents is this kind of respectable losing. And and that's I mean, his book, too. It's like, well, if we just retreat to intentional community. And this was my critique of the book initially in like 2017, like six years ago is like, that's cool. I think that's important. I, I want to do that kind of stuff. That's great. And actually, when I lived and went to seminary in Moscow, Idaho, which ironically, uh, Rod was going to write about Moscow, Idaho, but the pastor that trained me, Doug Wilson, was like way too right wing for him, and and he he it was too that was too he was too aggressive, and so Rod didn't want to write about him anymore, and so they, he left that all out of the book. But like that was supposed to be like the Benedict Option community was where I was at in this this large uh, reformed evangelical community in Moscow, Idaho. Um, and so I experienced that. Like I got to to be around in, in a community where thousands of people, right, believe all the same things I do and and go to the same church as me. And we're, we're all united and aligned in, in what we think and believe, what we love, what we hate, all of these things. And so I'm like, that's beautiful. I, I want that. A lot of people want that. But at the same time, right, it, it cannot stop there. It can't be just like, all right, retreat to the place you want to live yeah, with all of your other your Christian friends, and then, and then profit, right? No, because, like, you have this massive regime that hates you and wants you destroyed, and they're going to come after you, right? They're not going to leave you alone, and so you have to cultivate the kind of virtues of of confrontation, of fighting, and so uh, the reason I chose, you know, a Saint Boniface for for my book is. You know, St. Boniface was, I know you guys all know your church history really well. Well, maybe, you know, I'm sure you all do. You know the story of St. Boniface. Uh, if you read the book, I, I talk about it. But um, he was a Benedictine monk in the 8th century. And he was, you know, the the previous abbot of his monastery had had either uh, died or retired or, or, you know, had left his position and, and it was vacant. And um, he was supposed to take it over. And it's very 
you know, very comfy for the eighth century, you know, job to be the abbot of a monastery, very prestigious, you know, very, very nice. Uh, but he, he refused it. He, he wanted to go be a missionary to the Saxons in, in Saxony, right. To the, the people across the Rhine that were not Christians, they were pagans. And he wanted to share the gospel with them. And so what he does, at least as the legend goes, is he crosses the Rhine and he goes to the great shrine, uh, which is the Oak of Thor. And they believed that if you, if anybody touched the tree, right, touched this this giant oak, that Thor would shoot a lightning bolt down from the heavens and and kill you. And so he went there at noon and said, this time tomorrow, I'm going to come back and I'm not just going to touch your tree, but I'm going to cut it down. And so word went out to all of the villages all around. They wanted to see this guy fry, right? They wanted to see this guy get zapped. And so hundreds of people showed up to, to witness this. And the legend goes, at least, that he took one swing of the axe and a wind came out of heaven and knocked the tree down. And all you know, the hundreds of Germans that were there that day got baptized and became Christians. And so I looked at that. I'm like, here's the guy who left his literal Benedict Option community, the monastery, to go on the offense, right, to, to, to go aggressively attack the idols that surrounded him. And, and that's, that's the ethos of what I, I want in the book, right? And, and people to take away from it is we, we have to be on offense. You can't just be retreating. Like retreating is, is, a, is a tactic, right? It's, it's something that you do to be able to continue fighting, right? That's why you retreat. But Dreer just stops there. He just stops. All right, retreat and just keep retreating. It's a tactic. It's not a strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. Who? So you mentioned earlier that you know he is a popular guy, and he is a he is a popular guy. You know, I don't think anybody here will dispute that. Uh, he's been around a long time. Who is his audience? I think for for our audience, it might be curious. Uh, is I certainly don't read or listen to Rod Dreher, uh frequently. Yeah. And I think everyone's curious, maybe, who does at this point? Uh, is it old people? Is it like the D.C. Catholic scene? Who who are Rod Dreher's foot soldiers? Who are the Dreher partisans? Yeah, I think I think it's a lot of that. I mean, I think his his audience skews much older. Um, I think they are you know your kind of respectable conservative types, especially yeah, like the D.C. Catholic scene or the the D.C. you know tradcath type of people. Like if you read, uh, Ross do that, right. You probably read yeah. Audrey or two. Right. Um, so it's, it's kind of that same that overlap of that same audience, or maybe if you read like compact magazine, right. You read like Adrian Vermeule and, yeah. and first things and yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's more of a, you know, intellectual audience. It's probably, you know, your, your middle-class, upper middle-class types that, uh, like within, within my context, um, you're looking at like so. You know, I'm I was in the a very small you know, reformed, a conservative reformed denomination called the CREC, and and before that in college I was in the PCA, which is a you know quite a bit bigger. Um, that's probably the most conservative, uh, bigger uh, Presbyterian denomination, and even even within that one, it kind of like maps onto like if you know you're familiar with the LCMS, it's kind of like the the LCMS of of uh, for Presbyterians, right? And so the kind of men who are like elders in those churches, older, you know, guys that are like doctors and lawyers and, and you know, successful men, um, they there very much is this uh, culture of, of being very respectable, 
right? Being kind of these uh, stalwart guys in your community and, and looked up to and, and, and all of that. And, and it, it, his audience is largely guys like that, at least within my own context, right? Guys that, uh, that they're conservative, but they don't want to rock the boat, right? I think that would be how I would, how I would put it. Would you say it's important to convert them, so to speak, or even radicalize them or just let the passage of time take care of it and focus on the younger people? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's been my, my strategy. Like I look at even like the, you know, the viewership of my podcast is like 60 or 70% under the age of 40. Um, and so, and the stuff that I taught, like CJ, um, my co-host, you know, he writes for Chronicles and so really, really, really sharp guys, good friends with Paul Gottfried. Um, and, and so it's, it's still like the stuff we talk about is, is fairly heady and intellectual. So it's still kind of the, the audience that we have are the kind of guys that in, in 10 or 15 years are going to be in those positions in their churches where they're going to be the, you know, the lay leaders in their church. Um, and so that's that's kind of my strategy is just, um, I mean, yeah, if we get some of the boomers to, to wait, some of them have, you know, I don't want to be, I mean, everyone always wants to trash the boomers. Um, and, and, you know, it's probably it's often fair, but um, a lot of them are, are aware of things too, right? A lot of them have, have um, had their eyes opened, especially after the last three years. Um, what do you think distinguishes those boomers that quote unquote get it versus those that yeah. don't? Is it like they're socioeconomically, they've seen struggles? Because I think a lot of a lot of this can be explained also by comfort. You know, if, if, yeah. if you're comfortable, you have real no incentive to change things. But maybe the, the economics, maybe there's a family member ran into trouble. Like, could you identify what distinguishes these people who are older who do seem to understand maybe what you're talking about versus those that don't? Yeah, I think I think some of it, like you said, is it definitely comfort. Like I, I have a I have a good friend. Um, you know, he loved the book, and um, his and his dad really loves loves the book. Has bought a whole bunch of copies for friends and things like that. And uh, but his his brother, um, you know, read like the back cover and is like, I refuse to read this. I can't believe you think things are really that bad. Well, his, his brother has, you know, a pretty comfortable life, like makes a good living and, you know, is, is very much, you know, a grill American, like, like I described, like he, he's, he's conservative, like he'll, he'll vote for the GOP or whatever, but he doesn't you know, think that hard about things because life is pretty good, right? He, um, he lives in, you know, a, a safe part of the world, a safe community where the, the tranny stuff and the crime and everything else is not really impacting him yet. Uh, so if you live in that kind of bubble, right, you're going to be insulated from that regardless of whether you're older or younger or whatever. Um, so I think, I think some of it is that people that have experienced discomfort, right? People, especially if they experience it now, right? If the convulsions of the last, um, you know, three or four years have impacted them that, that awakens them. But I mean, you see this, like, I mean, you see some of the kind of people that are getting, you know, nabbed for January 6th are like, you know, fairly well-to-do people like CEOs and, and, and things like that. Right. So, um, and, and so I, I don't know, I, I think, I think it, it isn't, it isn't just simply like, okay, if you, if you make a certain income level, you're just never going to get it. All right. I don't, I think it's that way necessarily, but I, I think, I mean, it's, it's a cross section of, um, the, the, the creature comforts that are at your disposal on the one hand, but then also you're just your, your normal disposition, right? If you're, if you're someone that 
that is predisposed to um, avoid conflict and you have a comfortable life, well, you're, you're probably not going to get it. But if, if you're, if you're somebody that like if sees something is wrong and bad and it's going to say something, right. Um, and then, and, and you see the state of our world, right. Then you might be more open to regardless of, of what your, you know, what your lifestyle is. So I want to ask about like, you know, obviously we've talked about these sorts of issues, uh, for a long time. Uh, and I think that although probably a plurality of our users are, you know, Christian in some sense, Mm -hmm. uh, where they at least take it seriously, I think that, you know, dedicated Christians are sort of a minority amongst our audience. Mm-hmm. But they'll agree with you about a lot of these uh, societal diagnoses. Mm-hmm. What do you think it is about Christianity specifically that speaks to uh, these sorts of things and not some sort of like bland, uh, you know, political science explanation? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I mean, some of it, some of the difficulty, and, I, and I'm sure you know, with a, a large chunk of your audience that is, you know, is not Christian, or even even certainly many of the the Christians in your audience, um, right? They they see the kind of of Christianity that is extant in America and in the West, and it it doesn't comport necessarily with historic Christianity, right? So they, you see. The kind of Christianity that you know took off in the ancient world in the first you know three centuries um, is is you know qualitatively different than what we have today, right? I think I think we can understand that, and um, I, I think um, you know just the the rough you know, like sociological or political science explanation. Um, you can get like the details of it, but it's um, I, I think it's a much deeper problem than just. Um, what we like making a, a nice sociological or political fix. So right? if we just tweak, if we just tweak some of the controls a little bit, then we can get back to normal and things will be good. Now, I think it's, I think it's a much deeper spiritual problem, right? The problems that we have are, are at, at the very core, a spiritual one. I mean, I see this even with like, um, you know, conservative Christian friends that are, you know, involved in policy and, and, and things like that. And they're like, well, we need to, if we just ban abortion and ban no fault divorce and, and, uh, you know, ban transgenderism and, and all of these things, and we pass these laws, then things will, that things will work and we'll have a good birth rate again. Like just even addressing like the fertility problem. Right. And it's like, no, that's, that's, you have it exactly backwards, right? Like these are lagging, like laws that protect these things are lagging indicators of the spiritual health of a people. And so it's, 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 it's more, more so I would say, you know, changing it, the, the core deeply held beliefs of, of a people and re- recovering a, a kind of Christianity that is not just, you know, going to your mega church and listening to a, a concert and a, a really um, emotional Ted talk and, uh, and, and actually um, the kind of faith that is, 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 not surface level like that, but very, very deep. The kind of the kind of faith that people had, where they would go to be martyred, right? Um, that that's what has to be recovered. And the the kind of people that have it. I mean, we've talked about it before. Like the it's it's really like the the right wing Christian Christians on the fringes that are kind of being you know sidled out by their denominations, right? People that are getting doxxed and attacked and things like that. Um, those are the ones that actually have that degree of courage, like a, like a martyr. 
did. Right. And so, I mean, those are the people that I think in, in the future are the ones that are going to reform uh, the Christian world that w- that we need to recover. So hopefully elaborate a little bit more on that, uh, Hank. Uh, you know, hopefully I answer your, your question, but uh, you keep going. Well, is it as simple as like that Christians display the moral courage in order to call? Like there's a lot of people mm-hmm. that call out what we see as like actually evil mm-hmm. in some metaphysical sense. Like, mm-hmm. you know, people from wildly different uh ideological or metaphysical backgrounds will condemn society. But like, what is the role of Christianity, like qua Christianity? Like, you know, you can say that according to Christian doctrine, like these things are evil. You can say, you can say like, according to esoteric Hitlerist doctrine, like these things are ontologically evil. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't have said ontologically evil. I know that's a, uh, I should have made up a phrase. And I, I apologize to our listenership. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why why Christianity specifically? I think, yeah, I think in, in terms of the, the negative, um, all the things that are messed up, I mean, all the things that I talk about in, in my book, you can, there is, I mean, within, you know, traditional Christian doctrine, there's this uh, a, a doctrine of common grace, where there's a natural order to the world that God has made, where, you know, it isn't just Christians, right? People that, that, that trust in Jesus that are able to recognize the natural order and see how it works. Um, it's, it, it's accessible by, by everyone, right? So the things that are, I won't say ontologically evil, things that are evil, um, they, like everybody can see that, right? Everybody or, or most people could see if, they, if they're sane, Right. If they aren't or given over to the evil. Right. They could see that these things are, are wrong and bad and evil. Um, but it's it's my contention that to build anything positive. Right. So not just um, addressing the evil. That's that's on the one hand. But then once you've addressed it, what what are you actually building? Right. What what kind of of community, society, civilization um, are you are you able to uh, build on top of of what you positively believe. And I think, I think only, you know, the real historic Christian faith is capable of doing that. Like you look at the history of the West for the last 2000 years, and it was, it was Christianity that, that built, um, the, the Western world after Rome, uh, and sustained it and, and, and built on top of grew, grew it even, even greater and more glorious. And, I, I I believe it. The same thing is going to happen again. That what, however, you know, this trash world around us shakes out. It's it's going to be Christianity that 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 comes out of the ashes to build um, what is true and good and beautiful going forward. And and you know, not to be like too you know Nietzschean or something, but uh, it, it is the it's it's the essence of this like vital spirit that that you know, created the West after the ancient world, after, after the classical period is this is what drove people. This is what, um, like genuine real faith is what caused them to spend centuries building cathedrals and, and, you know, conquering continents. Right. And like, that's, this is, this is what's behind it. It isn't, it isn't fake. Like I remember going, being in, in college in, um, 
in like history class and we talk about the you know the era of exploration and like Cortez and Pizarro and things like that and and these like idiot lib professors I have would just scoff They're like no they didn't believe in any of that at all it was just they just cared about gold right because they're just projecting what they actually believe onto these historical figures right how they what they actually are uh but the reality is you read what these men said and what they did and you you look into their actual motivations and they are driven by by faith, by what they believe. Um, and, and I, I look at that, I'm like, that's, that's the thing that can, can build, uh, the future for us too. Could I challenge you? <laughs> of course you can. <laughs> okay. No, I, I, I love, I love, uh, everything you said. I just want to, I'd like to hear your perspective because I've heard, I maybe wouldn't characterize, you know, the, these arguments as maybe necessarily liberal, but I've heard other arguments about, let's just take the West, for example, as to why uh, colonialism happened, why did the Industrial Revolution happen, why did uh, the Renaissance happen, etc. These are other aspects of European history that I think are quite notable and many would say impressive. And some say that Christianity didn't have anything to do with that. Um, let me, let me be more specific so you can hopefully respond to that. So obviously you just gave the colonial one, which I think is a good example of this, where, you know, the drive for, for territory, land, gold resources seems to be an incentive to me at least, and some others. Um, and you're not wrong in saying that there was a component where they brought missionaries and they brought, uh, Spanish missions and they brought Christianity to the new world. Definitely true. Um, I'm not even sure if one is causing the other. They could just also be, you know, coincidental. But um, more to the point, why did Europe become great? Uh, You know, it's sort of like uh, European, um, pro-European people, I guess, uh, on on this show. Uh, I don't think we're dispelling any uh, misconceptions when we say that. But (laughs) why, why did that happen? And... Prior to Christ, you know, in this sort of uh, classical era, there were some pretty impressive civilizations. Now, I'm, I'm on record saying that there were some excesses in Rome in particular. Uh, other people have other opinions of that, about that. But that obviously was not because of Christianity. Now, after that, there was also a period called the Dark Ages, which most people regard as somewhat of a dark time, not, not so good. And then... There were some interesting things that happened, uh, definitely medieval architecture and art and the spirituality of the, the monasteries, I think, are very interesting. Uh, but it was really kind of the Reformation and the printing press and I think the Renaissance and then eventually the Industrial Revolution, which became the the pillars of what became the might of Europe. Because up until then, it was really, you know, the Chinese and Indian civilizations were quite uh, impressive compared to what Europe had. So maybe you could make the case for why Christianity was so fundamental to perhaps what drove Europe's greatness. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, yeah, let me back up here. Uh, I don't think it's the, the, the sole cause, right. Of, uh, of, of Western greatness, you know, um, like you say, like Rome and Greece before that were certainly impressive in their own right. Um, so it's not the sole one, but I I look at it and I think, well, there's a reason why the gospel went into Europe and why God used European people, um, the way that he, he did and the way that he has, um, and has, has blessed them immensely. Right. I don't, I don't think it's 
necessarily exclusively well because they had Christianity, other people didn't. That that's why it was so good. Um, but you see what what happens. I I think. I mean, I don't take the like just looking at like the fall of Rome, for instance. I don't take the like the Edward Gibbon uh, view entirely, where it's like, oh, it was Christianity that caused the fall of Rome. I think, I think the um, the Roman Empire itself was was um, Christianity aside, uh, it was bound to collapse. And actually, I think Christianity kept it together much longer than it would have otherwise. Um, but no, I, I think um, it is. I, I think it's it's both. I think that you you have these these civilizations that already exist and even even with the like, the so-called you know dark ages yes it's a period where rome collapses and the the glory of rome you know, recedes right but there's there are still people right there's still people there there are still uh people building uh building civilization uh despite that right um even even with the the gothic invasions and um and the the huns and, and so forth Right, is it's still a period where there is there is massive uh, growth and expansion, and even even throughout the medieval period, right? Um, yes, you don't have the printing press or industrialization happening yet, but there is there is a, a tremendous degree of like economic uh, prosperity that it had existed for like you know a thousand years, um, and and you know relative peace um, throughout this period, uh, and so. I think it's a it's a confluence of of all these things, but I think the 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 vital spirit of of Europe throughout the period of Christendom is 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 due to uh, the Christian faith driving them right. And because I mean, especially like look at um, look at Europe today, right? Uh, compare Europe to like like de-Christianized Europe. Um, I mean, you could maybe you would maybe say you know if you're if you're you know playing the devil's advocate here, Adam. Um, that I hope I'm not like, doing that. No, no, no. <laughs> but you could like you could maybe say that oh, this it's just a coincidence that like the state that Europe is in today like corresponds with how de-Christianized they've become, right? I mean, maybe maybe that's random and a coincidence, but I, I think there's yeah, I think that's parallel. that's that's a very good observation. Yeah, so I don't I don't think it's the only thing, right? I mean, this is what I talk about in the book too. It's not just like. Um, we've become de-Christianized and that's the sole thing that has done it. Like we have, we've become uprooted from, from all of our historic ways of life, right. Which includes, you know, includes things like, like ethnicity and, and tradition and heritage and so forth. Right. So, and, and the Christian faith is a major, major part of that, which is what helped to create Europe. And I think is, is, is foundational to it, but it's not, Again, it's not the only factor, of course. So yeah, don't. I hope you. I hope. I hope I don't sound like I'm. Because I'm, you, you see, some of these people were like, the only thing that made Europe unique is Christianity. And if if Christianity had gone to you know Mongolia, right, they would have the same civilization as Europe. Uh, it's like no, I, I don't think so. Um, yeah, yeah, it's hard to take that seriously. It, as it would be to say the opposite, to say that Christianity had no role. I think that's also ridiculous. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the, the notion of, and I'm not even advocating for this, but I've, I've heard this idea floated that Christianity isn't for everybody. And, you know, if we're going to keep it at the national context, you know, Europe Mm -hmm. and America and the Americas, they, they, they got that Christianity thing, you know, down, but I don't know about Africa. I don't know about Asia, you know, they, they got their own thing. Do you think it needs to spread globally or do you think it's better just to let, you know, 
things be different? Um, no, I think it is. Uh, I mean, for one, like Jesus commands that, right? That uh, to go into all the nations and 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 share the gospel, right? Right. To the, yeah, and, and so, but at the same time, like Asian um, Christianity and African Christianity and so forth will look different. Like it, this is one of the things that I think a lot of a lot of Christians. Um, you know, especially in the you know post-war era where everything is multicultural and 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 everyone's atomized and and they're you're not even allowed to think of things in terms of of ethnicity and group and and nationhood and, and things like that um they get this they they're completely clueless about this and don't even think about it along these lines but you even look at like Europe and especially Europe after the reformation and the various um Christian traditions that formed and even pre-reformation honestly um and there are there are different emphases that different you know, just due to national character of different peoples. Like one one example I, I like to give often is like the um, it's it's not like a coincidence that a lot of uh, Reformed and Presbyterian people. Then this is just the tradition that that came from reformers like John Calvin. Um, it's not a coincidence that. The places where Calvinism took off in Europe are like Holland and Scotland and uh, northern Germany, mm-hmm. right? It's not a not – and then you think about the national character of those places. Well, one, right, each of those places when, when the Romans came, like thousands of years earlier, these are the people that like refused to allow the Romans to rule over them and pay taxes to them, right? Where, I, where my ancestors are from uh, – um, East Friesland, like famously when the Romans came in, they, they, um, they rebelled, said, we're not paying taxes anymore. And they sent in legions and they just killed them all. And the Romans said, ah, you know what? It's not really worth it. (laughs) And it's the same thing with Scotland, right? I mean, they literally built a wall (laughs) to keep, to keep the people that would become, you know, modern Scots, you know, they, Hadrian builds this wall and says, we just want to deal with these people anymore. Like, just stay on your side. Um, and so, yeah, the Northern Germans, the Dutch and the Scots and, and the Swiss as well, right? Coincidentally, these are all the people that became Calvinist, right? Weird. And like, and it's, and it's also ironic, like the majority of like reformed people today are very like libertarian minded in their politics, right? Not a coincidence either, I think. And even in Asia, right? The place where, because you know, Protestant missionaries, Presbyterian missionaries went all over the place. They went to Japan, they went to China, they went to Korea. And the place where it took off the most right, and where they were able to plant the most Presbyterian churches, and it's actually like the most Presbyterian country on, on earth now is Korea. Um, and it's like, there's like national character reasons for that too, right? And so all these different kinds of, uh, and flavors and, 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 you know, traditions of within Christianity have a, a very national um, uh, emphasis that that drive it. Like that's the majority of like the denominations in America today. These are mostly just along ethnic lines, right? Um, I mean, you see it even in the colonial period. It's like these are just different. It's like Albion Seed, right? Like different people from different parts of England, and that th- those are the Puritans there, and the, here are the you know the Anglicans in in Virginia. Like it's these are all just different people, different kinds of of Englishmen, right? That settled America. And that's that's what drove the you know all the the various denominations in America that exist today, not because people are like 
just deciding to pick out, you know, color by number their own Christian tradition, like like people do now. Um, but you just you believed what your your ancestors basically believed, and so. Like going to when you think about okay Asia Africa South America and these various places it's it's things will develop that way too it won't look like um, American Christianity or you know uh, French Catholicism or uh, you know, Italian Catholicism Catholicism right they'll take on their different character even like um, Nigeria for instance is like the most Anglican country in the world um, and. And their Anglicanism is quite a bit different than, um, you know, like the Archbishop of Canterbury in the UK, right? Like, for one, like the Nigerian Anglicans actually believe the Bible, whereas in, <laughs> in the UK they don't, right? Um, but they they um, they're much much more much more staunch than than the the, the liberal uh, Western um, Anglicans are now. And and so I mean that's that's a big thing. Like you look at like Uganda, for instance, it's it's very much uh, a lot of evangelical missionaries have have worked over there, and the country just like I mean it, it created you know huge furor over in, in America here, like so much so that like Ted Cruz tweeted about it and how horrible it was uh, that Uganda you know based because of like evangelicals in Uganda uh, criminalized homosexuality. Where if like <laughs> so, no, we can't do that. That upsets all of our foreign policy goals, and we're we're gonna need to invade Uganda. Um, but all these countries, they're going to have um, their own their own um, you know traditions and ways uh, and and expressions of, of Christianity. But um, I think I think all of these these other countries, like it's it. There's a reason why. Um, why Christians from the West and God has used the Christians from the West during like, like the reason why Nigeria is, is um, what it is now in terms of its, its staunch Anglicanism is because it was a British colony for, for, you know, almost two centuries and Anglican priests went there and, and taught, taught the people. Um, and, and so I think that is, that's what God has used in the past, and and I, I think He'll continue to use that. The West, I mean, as much as I, I dog on it and say, okay, here's all the problems with the church in the West and, and everything today, I think God's going to continue to use that and use the blessings that He's given, um, you know, Western Christianity. Um, he's He's going to keep doing that and and bringing the gospel to all of these nations. What do you think of the uh, the Moldberg uh, thesis? Uh, like, <laughs> you know, kind of to to do a very light gloss that there's sort of an element of liberalism that's kind of inherent to uh, at least a certain very prominent theological tradition of Christianity that is like in some sense the uh, the root of uh, contemporary progressivism. Yeah, I um. You know, it's funny. A lot of my fellow Reformed uh, Presbyterian, you know, guys like me, um, hate the Moldbug thesis, right? They're like, "No, he's slandering us, and and it's so terrible." But um, honestly, I think there's a lot of truth to it. Where um, I can, and actually, I can probably, I can probably. I mean, this probably sounds, you know, uh, very proud <laughs> and, and arrogant to say, but it's like. No, I know the theological tradition that he's commenting on like better than he does, and I'm like, I think he's mostly right. I mean, I, there's there's some excess to it. There's some caricature that he get, and this is why some of my guys get upset about it. Um, 
but there is like so the New England Puritans, for instance, um, were very and this gets, you know, I don't know how deep, you know, inside baseball we want to get with theological stuff here. Uh, but there is there are various eschatological positions uh, within within Christianity. And, and they, there have been they've existed for, you know, 2000 years. And uh, the, the one that most people are common with are familiar with the most common one today uh, within mainstream evangelicalism is like dispensational premillennialism where the people, you know, that those are like your John Hagee types of people that are like, we need to give Israel all the billions of dollars so they can rebuild the third temple. So Jesus can come back. You're right. People that think the world is going to end tomorrow and there's going to be a rapture and things like that. Um, that's, that's the most common position today is, is a form of, of premillennialism. Uh, but the new England Puritans, they were uh, post-millennial. And this, this is what I am, right? So the millennium is just in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, there's this, you know, thousand-year period where, where the saints, uh, you know, the church rules with Christ. Um, and there's, there's, you know, um, where, where uh, the reign of Christ is, is, is realized and that he's, he's ruling and reigning and, and the, the world is progressively you know, uh, getting better. Um, this is what the New England Puritans believe. This is what, what I believed, uh, what I believe. Um, and, and so when people are, are faithful, right, it produces things like early America, right? You look at, I mean, we just had Thanksgiving, right? And you look at the, the kind of um, suffering and, and, and pain and, and, uh, perseverance that the, the early pilgrim settlers had to go through. And then, um, you know, you look at like, um, all of the, the warfare and bloodshed of like Prince Philip's war and, and things like that. Right. I mean, these are people that truly believed that they were building, uh, a Christian kingdom and a city on the hill and that they're doing this for, for God's glory. And they, they want to, to build Christian civilization uh, all over the world and including in the new world. And so they believed that, that the gospel would eventually conquer the world, right? This is, this is their belief. And so when you're, when people are faithful and they're actually genuinely Christian, right? The way that that works out is they do amazing, impressive stuff, like build um, a, a society like America out of nothing. Right. Um, but then what happens if, if you still have this theology, this theological impulse of we need to actively uh, build a better world that is – but you don't believe in Jesus anymore, but you still have this impulse like the Puritans did, then it then it kind of just like transmogrifies into, uh, into progressivism, right? And this is, this is basically his thesis is that um, – he, he wouldn't put it the way I, I, I do – but they basically stopped believing the Bible. They stopped believing in Christ, and they just wanted to create utopia, right? So they still are very post-millennial, but they wanted to create this post-millennial utopia and this this perfect, you know, like Star Trek society, right? That's that's what happens when you continue to be post-millennial, but you're not you're not Christian anymore, right? You're just you know, whatever they are. Right. Um, and so, no, I, I, I largely agree with, with Moldbug's thesis, even though like people maybe would think I'd be predisposed not to, right. Cause he's not a Christian making this, this argument. Uh, but I, I think he's, he's largely very right. And actually like Murray Rothbard, um, made, this is the first, even before I ever read Moldbug, 
that was the first place I'd seen someone make the, a similar thesis. Like he's kind of, I don't know if he if he ever cites Rothbard this way, but Rothbard had this. Um, I mean, whatever you think of his, you know, ideology and politics and everything, his analysis of um, American history, particularly particularly the religious history of America, is phenomenal. And so he did um, this long you know, lecture series about the period of America from, you know, after the Civil War until like World War Two and and covered this 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 whole period and showed that, no, it was it was basically these, um, you know, descendants of the New England Puritans that became progressives. And um, and these are the people who were behind like prohibition and women's suffrage and, you know, like the drive to World War Two, even even getting off, you know, even even having the you know, getting off the gold standard and, and uh, having the Federal Reserve. Right. These are this is part of their like project. And, and, and it's like, well, it's, it's true. It's actually what happened. And, and so I think that's, that kind of shows you like the potency of a, of an optimistic eschatology, <laughs> I think, because like when, when you're faithful and you really believe it, uh, you can, you could build a, a beautiful, glorious civilization that, that honors God. And when you're not faithful, you can create hell on earth. You know, I only have uh, one more kind of question that I intended on uh, asking, and it might make a good closer. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> fellas, do you, do you guys have uh, other stuff that you wanted to ask? I, I just had one thing, and uh, maybe you can have the final word, Hank, uh, unless Hans would like to also say something, of course. Okay, so from what I'm hearing, and, and maybe it's just your personality because you seem like a very polite, considerate person, um, Andrew, would you say that Christianity as an umbrella term is okay? In other words, are there, do we have a big tent in Christianity where the Catholics, the Protestants, the Orthodox, and all the various blends in between are acceptable? Or do you think there's a, there's a true version of Christianity that, other Christians who are not of that denomination should adopt? Or do you think a more ecumenical approach is sufficient or ideal? Because we talked about the national differences, right? But what about within your own country? Do you have any yeah. particular preference or uh, viewpoint on that? Yeah, no, this is, this is um, I think, one of the most important questions for the church, generally speaking, today. Um, it is... You know, my, my personal perspective is, okay, like on the one hand, like I believe what I believe and I have the doctrinal positions and, 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 um, uh, beliefs about what the Bible says and, and so forth, uh, because I think I'm right <laughs> and other people that disagree are wrong. Um, but at, at the same time, um, most of those things are, are not the big E on the I chart. Like I see this like on, on Twitter the other day you know, a week or so ago, like yeah, all of these Christians, even in like, you know, fairly online right wing Twitter are like at each other's throats about, um, you know, whether you should use wine or grape juice in communion. Right. Or, and you see this with like Baptists and, and Presbyterians like fighting over, over baptizing babies or not, things like that. And I'm just like, guys, they're, they're chopping the balls off little boys right now. Right. We, this is not, I mean, I, I, I have my opinion about what we should use in the Lord's Supper, but 
this is not like the big thing that we should be fighting about right now. Um, and and so I look at, at things that way, right? Obviously, there are you know massive, massive differences between my theology and like the theology of the Catholic Church. And and many of my Catholic friends are like, you should become Catholic. You should become Catholic. I'm like, well, you should become what I am. Um, and and there's there's obstacles to working together that are long. I mean you know, half a millennia old between Protestants and Catholics that are not, you know, necessarily easily overcome. But at the same time, I look at it and it's like, I, I have way more in common with like the trad cats and like the, um, the, the like right wing Lutherans and, and, uh, and, you know, uh, very conservative Baptists and so forth than I do with like reformed people that want to tell me that, um, you know, it's a it's a sin to to believe, you know, that um, we shouldn't have infinity immigration. Right. Like, um, and so like that's that's the kind of battle that that we're largely in is um, various groups of Christians across all of Christendom that theologically disagree on all sorts of different points. And they have for centuries and they're not going to be able to overcome those differences you know, with the wave of a hand, but at the same time, you're, you're in the foxhole with who you are in the foxhole with. And there's, there's a kind of unity that exists in battle, right. That, um, that I think most, most Christians should, um, should take advantage of, right. Should, um, should look at it and think, well, okay, I can, I can get along with these people, even though like I, I really disagree with your theology on this, this, or this, um, but at the same time, you are the people that want to stand and, and fight with me against the, the great evils that are confronting us. And and so, yeah, so in, I, I mean, I hate to use the word ecumenical because it's it's such a, a lib uh, Christian word. Uh, but it, I mean, that really is um, what it is. Like I, I, I like the, the small C Catholicity where I mean, that just means universal, like the, un, the church universal. That's what I mean. Every Sunday we, we confess in in the Nicene Creed. That I believe in the the Holy Catholic Church, and I, you know, I I'm lowercase uh, C when I have it in the, in the bulletin for the order of worship because it's not like the Roman Catholic Church is it's the Church Universal, right? All of the the Christians everywhere we we're united with, um, and and I want to have that perspective where it's like if if you think my theology of baptism is messed up, and I think yours is. That doesn't really matter right now because as much, I mean, it matters, but, but not to, not in the, the fight that's right in front of us. And, and so going forward, I think that's, that's the way the Christians have to be. Like, I, I remember, um, there was, there's a, a pastor, uh, um, that, that I've known, he was, he was a, a, a conservative Presbyterian pastor in Boulder, Colorado. And he was, he would, you know, go speak at conferences. And one of the, one of the things he would talk about, and this is like 20 years ago, right? So he's like, all right, where I am in Boulder, that's basically America in 20 years. Like I get a, I get a sneak preview of what America is going to look like 20, 20 years from now. And so he's talking about, you know, describing Boulder and the culture and the way things are. And it was like to, to a T the way America is today. And he said, Right. Everybody there, even if they're from like liberal denominations like the United Methodist Church and things like that, everybody that's there in Boulder is like the most conservative <laughs> uh, pastor in their entire denomination. And they have way more in common with each other 
And so they would have these like they would have these prayer meetings where all the different pastors in in the in the town would have like civic leaders, like the president of the university or the the mayor of the town come and they'd, they'd pray for him. And like God did amazing stuff with that. Um, and I, I look at like that example where it's like it's we're kind of in a similar spot, not just in one town, but throughout all of the Western countries, right? <laughs> the entire Anglosphere in Western Europe, um, where that that's the attitude I think Christians should have. Uh, today that, I mean, in the end, I think everyone's going to agree with me because I'm right uh, on all my theology. Um, but, uh, but, but uh, more seriously, no, I, th- I think uh, we should, um, we should be able to get along and set aside, you know, doctrinal differences to the extent that we can in good faith to be able to fight the battles together. So I just had one last question. Uh, what should a and it's a it's a big one to be fair. Uh, yeah. What should a young person do? Like, you know, it's very easy to log on to Twitter and be like, I'm based Catholic edge lord fourteen eighty eight somehow, uh, and like <laughs> that is the extent of your your interaction with yeah. uh, Christianity per se. But. For like somebody who looks outside and agrees with you on a lot of these diagnoses, but they also look around and it's like, well, my options are like the uh, the lady pastor uh, chicken soup for the uh, the soul uh-huh. uh, church. I have the uh, the Catholic church with the dude with kind of a bad reputation, uh, etc. What what should what should they do like mechanically, mm-hmm. like physically uh, on their uh, on their Sundays? Yeah, I think I mean, if you if you are are serious about um, the Christian faith and it's not just like an affectation, like some people online, some people, that's just their thing. Like they I mean, you see this with these like Zoomer guys, like the America first guys where they'll just be like Christ is Lord. And that's just a, a thing that they say. They don't, they don't really like have any deep rooted uh, Christian faith. It's just a thing that they picked up to be edgy, right? So I'm not necessarily talking about those kind of guys. I'm I'm talking like the ones that are very seriously inquiring about, okay, how do I how do I become a a a serious Christian, but at the same time, right, like you said, my options are, you know, the Lesbeterian church or um yeah, the 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 Catholic church where the priest is going to lisp through the liturgy or um or the big box evangelical church that um, if I have a conversation with the pastor there, like one, it's going to be a, a thousand miles wide and an inch deep, right? There's there's not any depth of of the teaching or anything like that. And, the, and you have a conversation with the pastor there and you, you know, even just being on the Internet and reading theology online, you you might have a firmer grasp of, of, of Christian theology than, than a typical evangelical pastor. Right. And those are like wherever you live, those are probably the options that you have in front of you. Um, and so and this this kind of goes against some of the things that I that I've said before in, in, in some of the things I say in the book, which is you need to seek out community. You need to um, um, have deep roots and recover roots that previ- previously existed, you know, return to your hometown if you can, to family, um, to the to relationships that you already have. Um, but for a lot of people. 
I, I think what they should do is there there are good churches and good pastors that exist. Like, I mean, there's there's several of them that people know about online, and there's many more that are unknown. Um, and you can find you can find good churches with pastors that are not oblivious, right? With pastors that that understand the the stuff that we've talked about today, the stuff I talk about in the book, the stuff that guys you know see online all the time. Um, those guys exist, but I mean, you might have to pick up and move and and go you know, to another state even, or another city uh, to be part of their, their church, be part of their community. Um, but I mean, that's, that's something that, especially after 2020 has, has really taken off is, I mean, I, I saw this just the other day online where they were talk people were talking about uh, Idaho, for example. And I mean, that's a good example because I, I, I lived in, in Moscow, Idaho, and I, I talked about that briefly. Um, and there's all this conversation about guys from California leaving. And, the, and when, even when I was there, um, they were like, oh, we don't want any Californians here. They're going to mess up our state. But the people that are that are leaving California are not the people – they're not the people that vote for Gavin Newsom or Kamala Harris or whatever. They're, they're the people that are fleeing Gavin Newsom and want to you know have a better life. Um, and so I, it's – you know people call it like the great sort or whatever. Um, I think, you know, that's a fine term, I guess. Uh, but, but people are, are leaving and going to places where they're able to, to have a good life, have community, have, you know, and, and leaving for a church is a, is a, as good a reason as any, right. It's, you can find jobs, uh, but finding a good church is very, very, very hard. Um, so I would, you know, for young men, I would encourage them to do that. Um, and, and especially, um, you know, for, for guys that are single, like I have, I have all sorts of young guys that, that, you reach out to me, they're like, I, I need to find a wife. And, you know, 20 years ago, I would say, well, you should go to church. That'd be great. Uh, that's where you should find your wife. But it's not so easy anymore, even there. Uh, so you want to find a, a church community where there are lots of lots of young single people like you uh, that you could be part of. Um, and so in, in that that then you can have the situation that maybe existed 20 or 30 years ago. Um, it still exists, but in much you know, much more limited way, much smaller way. Um, like you have to actively search for it rather than just it. That's the uh, baseline mode of being. Um, and so I would, yeah, I would, I would, uh, I would tell young guys to to do that if you're able to, um, especially now with, with the ability of so many people to work remotely um, or somewhat remotely, uh, you know, do that, like find, find a community that you can be part of in real life. Um, because, like online stuff and online relationships, listening to to pastors online, that's good. Um, I I appreciate that that lots of guys you know like to listen to my sermons and things like that. But it's it's way better to have an actual pastor that you respect um, that will sit down with you and and tell you when you're being an idiot. That's the, that's been the, some of the best stuff for my life is is having that. Um, and so I would um, I would encourage you know young men to do that to to um, to seek out. Good men, good pastors that that can lead them that that also know the time of day, uh, because they they do exist even though they do, it doesn't seem like there are that many out there. There there the number is growing, um, especially like we talked about earlier, uh, the younger cohort of of pastors and and leaders that exists out there it, that that get it that are aware of all the things that we're aware of. Um, that number is growing and it's, it's not going to shrink. It's going to continue growing. And, and so I would, I would seek out those men for sure. And, and there might be somewhere you near where you live. And if you can find them, 
uh, find these guys and and learn from them and and build things with them. I wanted to have uh, one quick announcement about Hank. You've been doing a great job uh, building up the American Sun. And then I wanted to close with uh, where can people find out more about your work, Andrew. But Hank, could you speak to what uh, the American Sun is uh, all about right now and where it is? Yes, yeah, so we are the American Sun, uh, spelled as you would expect, sun like in the sky. Uh, it is a pun. Uh, dot, uh, substack.com. We recently migrated uh, from WordPress for various reasons. Uh, substack is working out great. Uh, and, uh, you know, we uh, encourage people to uh, take a read, take a look. Uh, it also hosts uh, Myth of the 20th Century, the very podcast. Uh, that you listen to uh, right now, um, although that's also distributed on various other stuff. Um, if you'd like to uh, contribute, you know we're uh, easy to find on uh, Twitter uh, as well. And Andrew, where can people read about you? I believe you have a Substack as well. I do. I don't. I don't post on there anymore since I started writing for 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 Gab. Um, but um, my my articles are all on news.gab.com. Um, I have a a podcast, Contramundum. Um, I won't, you know, I can spell that out. I guess uh, C O N T R A, uh, and then Mundum M U N D U M. Uh, and you can find that, you know, YouTube and Spotify, and uh, we we have it on, on Gab as well. Um, and uh, yeah, I do that with C J Engel. Uh, we've yeah, we've really enjoyed the uh the whole podcasting thing and we've we've had a lot of good guests and conversations uh and we discuss you know a lot of the a lot of these issues um and I'm, I'm also on on twitter and gab at boniface option and the book that we've we've discussed you can find that at bonifaceoption.com i'm sure you'll probably have a you know link in, in the episode here too uh but that's that's where they could find the book or you can find it on amazon uh boniface option but uh yeah that's where where i can be found Thank you so much for joining us. And Hank, so glad to have you back. Great to be back, guys. It's easy enough to be what measure these things by your brains. I sank into Eden with you. Alone in the church by and by I'll read to you here, save your eyes You'll need them, your boat is at sea Your anchor is out, you've been swept away And the greatest of teachers won't hesitate To leave you there